till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicings rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. A lot of kids don't even know that that song actually exists. And so it is a song of the anthem of black liberation, right? And I'm hoping that more people will start to sing it and require it, especially this young generation. Because this young generation, um, I always believe in this theme. You don't know where you're headed until you know where you came from. From the studio of Rule 29, I'm your host, Justin Ahrens, and this is Design Of, a podcast about people and the path they have taken from the past to the present. Today, I have the privilege to introduce you to an amazing man, Pastor Chris Harris. This has been an episode we've wanted to do for quite a while, and we just couldn't align our schedules. And while Wills and I were waiting, I was nervous, honestly, because Pastor Harris was late, and we didn't know what to expect. But then he showed up. Taking all kind of medicine, because Thursday, I got cold. Oh, no. I went to Memphis, had to preach. And then in Memphis, it got worse. Yesterday was terrible. And you are the only reason I'm in oh. for work today. <laughs> oh, thank you. I would have called Bristol like, I'm canceling everything. We'll get you out of here as soon as we can. Nah, I'm going to stay. I'm, I'm up now. And unfortunately, this is audio. So how are you going to talk right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Just like out. I had to do preaching. Put some bass in your voice. We were sitting there talking earlier. And, it, and we can't do this. But, you know, I could do a four-hour multi-episode podcast (laughs) with you, my man. Whenever you're ready, let's do it. For those of you who do not know me or have seen my picture, I'm white. For whatever reason, it's never been lost on me that I've been treated differently many times than some of my friends who are quote-unquote different than me, whether that be because of race, religion, or economics. The suburb I live in outside of Chicago is not very diverse. The industry I work in, although it's changing, is not very diverse but I hope to live my life in a way that I do not exist in a vacuum or live surrounded by walls. I want to see and know my neighbors and their realities. Because once you are educated, you cannot hide. You need to engage in my opinion. So although this podcast talks a lot about the realities of racism and even covers some religious topics, that's because that is Pastor Harris's day-to-day. So listen to his amazing story and enjoy this conversation between two friends who love and respect each other. The main reason why I'm here is because you were so gracious to introduce us to your community. And so I want to start there. Sure. So tell me, you are born and raised in Bronzeville? Yep, born and raised right here in the Bronzeville community. Uh, been, my, been here my entire life. It's been pretty exciting to be uh, raised up in Bright Star Church of God in Christ, where I'm now blessed to be the senior pastor and also uh, being the founder and CEO of Bright Star Community Outreach and having the privilege to do uh, good work, what I call, you know, work that bring glory to God back here in the footprint of where I'm actually a son of the soil. So Bronzeville is a major community and I've been here forever and really, really excited to still be here and do God's work. That's amazing. So our listeners probably don't know about Bronzeville, never heard about Bronzeville. They sure. only probably hear or see what, you know, Twitter or whatever tells us about Chicago. So That's right. can you help paint the picture a little bit of this community, both its 
you know, it's reality and it's it's myth. Absolutely. Um, Bronzeville is rich with culture and history and heritage. Actually, uh, it is the very place where, you know, most of the folks who were part of the Great Migration, they landed here in Bronzeville. So everyone from the South, particularly from Mississippi, they ended up coming here. And if you talk to, well, it depends on who you talk to, you know, there are various versions of what the footprint of Bronzeville is. But what we call the footprint is everything between the Dan Ryan and Lakeshore Drive. So that's essentially what Bronzeville is. Uh, you talk about jazz, gospel, uh, much history right here in this particular area is where a lot of that was birthed. Thomas Dorsey on the gospel side, uh, Rosetta Tharp on the rock and roll side, who was on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, you had uh, people like uh, Maya Angelou and so many uh, other amaz amazing people like Sam Cooke and all of those people. Uh, Bronzeville is a huge place where many of those people either came from or came to and their uh, legacy was birthed out of Bronzeville. And so um, unfortunately the reason it's called Bronzeville is because it was the only community that black folks were able to come. Uh, it was surrounded by racism, you know, just a little bit over to uh, the western side of Bronzeville is, is a community called Bridgeport. And so if you went on the other side of the Dan Ryan, then guess what? You ran into racist white people. Same thing on the other side of Hyde Park to the eastern side, right? So you have to stay within the Bronzeville area, hence the name Bronzeville. That's where all the bronze people had to stay. Mm. I, didn't know, I didn't know that. Yep. So what is Bronzeville... What was it like when you were a kid? Yeah. Well, Bronzeville was uh, a different type of community. Um, urban communities, particularly African-American communities, uh, we were really a community, right? We were family. We were a part of each other. Although you still had crime then, you still had uh, illegal things happening then, it was quite different from what's happening now. Uh, we were connected as people although behaviors and even some classism, right, in the black community separated us. Uh, it was, whereas if I had the bread, but you had the sandwich meat, we put it together mm -hmm. so we can all have a meal. You know, if I had the Kool-Aid and you had the sugar, you put it together so we can all have something to drink. Uh, and so back then, everybody was everybody's cousin, some kind of way. Not blood, but connected through borders and, and neighborhood. And so uh, if you did something wrong, you know, sister so-and-so who was sitting on the front porch, nosy, uh, she would come and tell your grandmama. Because either you lived together, you shopped together, uh, you worshiped together, you worked together, or you just were, were connected some kind of way. And that's why we had community. If you look at that word, break it up, common unity. And it was the commonalities of life every day that made people unify. We're going to survive and we're going to thrive together. That's how Bronzeville was back then. Now it's much more disjointed. Families and people uh, don't really know each other. Uh, they don't really connect as they used to be. And all of the projects of Chicago were in Bronzeville, most of them. And people now want to know, why is there so much violence in Chicago? And why are all these gangs splintered? Well, at one time they were all together in these areas where the housing projects were. But it's like if you take a brick and you drop it down on a 
big, big, huge uh, gathering of marbles, what happens? When the brick hits it, it all spreads all throughout the city. And that's exactly what happened with the gangs, mm. right? You take all of these people and who were all together. They were all controlled by what we used to call the original gangsters, the OGs, right? And then they all spread out throughout Chicago via Section 8 and via fake promises to give them homes and things like that. They got the homes, but the promise attached to it wasn't really real. It was a fallacy. And so all of those folks who spread out, all of those gangs spread out. And so while the gangs were used units, used to be units, now they're all splintered. Now, now you see pockets of violence as opposed to the communities of violence. And that's what really happened. And so when you come back to IIT, which is in Bronzeville, it sat in Bronzeville, but it really didn't serve Bronzeville. Mm. So my brothers and my sisters, when we would be walking down State Street, because we didn't have a phone and you didn't have an app on your phone to tell you when the bus was coming, <laughs> uh, you would, in this cold Chicago weather, you would walk down the street just trying to get to where you're going. So if you walked through the IIT land, like the campus area, the whole campus area, man, the police would come and chase you and arrest you. Mm because they were so racist. And that was the legacy. And so now it's pretty surreal for Bright Star and Bright Star Community Outreach to be partnering with IIT because it's the same place that used to arrest my brothers and my sisters. And so it's pretty amazing uh, what has happened in Bronzeville and what it was then and what it is now. And because now there's so many people who have moved in who don't really know the her uh, heritage or the history and don't really care about the culture. Um, they just know it's closer to downtown. And so I have a fear that what has always been Bronzeville will eventually become Tanville, Off-Whiteville, mm -hmm. and then Whiteville. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to hold on to the heritage. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you not end up in a violent community? Thank you for that question. Um, it's pretty. It's actually a pretty special question to my, my heart. Um, I always tell people that there always has been and there, unfortunately, unless there is real work, intentional work put in to destroy it, there always, always has been this cradle to prison or cradle to grave pipeline in most black communities. And were it not for a preacher, pastor of a church by the name of Dr. James Stovall, who is the founder of the church that I now pastor, I too would have been a victim of that cradle to grave or cradle to prison pipeline. Uh, my mom um, was raped by my biological father um, to get her pregnant with me. And she, although she had been in relationship with him before and had my first, uh, my older brother and my sister, uh, they had broken up and they were gone. And on a night where he was completely drunk uh, that's what happened. And she uh, didn't plan to have me, so she wanted to abort me. But that pastor, Dr. James Stovall, of the church that I now pastor, told her, don't abort him. God has a plan for his life. And she listened to her pastor. And who knew, right, that 25 years later, I would end up being his successor, and he would be gone on to be with the Lord. Not only did he mentor me, not only did he become my spiritual and what I call my natural father, even though he's not my biological father, he was the only father I've ever known, um, he also protected me. Uh, he also, even the deacons back in the day, 
uh, when my mom would have to leave church and bring our family uh, back into the projects because they were shooting in gangs. Sometimes the deacons would literally come with because they were also armed. Uh, many of them were in the police force and they would literally walk us into the house to make sure we got in safe. And sometimes he would always tell them, make sure Chris is okay. And boy, when I tell you, they would carry me on their back. And not only did he protect me in that way, uh, he also sent me to private school because the gangs were trying to recruit my brothers and then started to try to recruit me. So he took me out of the public school and put me in Tabernacle Christian Academy, mm. private school, and paid the money for me to go there. And uh, wherever he would go, I would go. And as I grew older, he would go to business meetings and things like that with the city politicians or with the community leaders, and he would allow me to go with him. Uh, even when he went to the restaurants, he would send leftovers back home to give this to Chris, right? Which is pretty amazing. So that pastor and that church is really what saved my life. Now I'm the pastor of that church uh, because of that pastor of the church. And so now I feel like what he did for me, the reason I created Bright Star Community Outreach and do the community work that we do is because he was that for me. So now the Lord has a real sense of humor. I feel like although I was able to travel the world singing gospel and jazz, it gave me a global view of what the world really is. And it took me outside of this box that I was in and it shifted the paradigm of my thinking. And that pastor gave me the money to go on those trips and tours. So now I said, I got to pay it forward. He did it for me. Now it's my time to do it for this generation. What I love about doing this podcast is to look back with our guests and see moments that are life-changing and witness what came after those moments. Well, I read, I read something about this. I want to see if I got my facts straight. All right. <laughs> Can't wait to check this out. <laughs> so there's, there's no doubt that Dr. Stovall was a massive influence into you. Yep. But did you really start staying at the church at eight years old? That's a true story. <laughs> Actually, um, when I was uh, five is when I really started to sing in what we call the Sunshine Choir. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> at the Sunshine Choir. And then um, as I got older... Uh, eight years old is when I'm singing as a Sunshine Choir member, but my, vo my voice was so advanced till Dr. Stovall had them to put me in the adult choir. So I'm starting to lead, sing, and be in the adult choir. It was called the Inspirational Choir. Now that's a big step up, man. Yeah, from sunshine to inspiration. Because it's all adults that's and little exactly, Chris. That's right, right. little Chris. Right there singing <laughs> on the front row. And man, it was so cool. Mother Betty Brown who was over the Sunshine Choir, I'll never forget. I think this is what really got me was the she promotion. She said that she missed her All-Star? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> but she she was smart. She kept me coming back singing with the uh, Sunshine okay, Choir. Okay. So I would go lead with the older choir, the Inspirational Choir, and then if the Sunshine Choir had to sing, I would come on down and <laughs> sing with them. So they made sure I didn't forget. Come on back down to your roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget during our last, um, oh, well, not last, one of the most important for me, uh, Sunshine Choir concerts, was because we had our musical, and man, she gave me an S-curl. Now, clearly, I don't need an S-curl now because I'm bald. <laughs> That's what pastoring would do to you. It'll make you lose all your hair, I'm telling you. But she gave me an S-curl, 
And man, I thought I was something else. So you're rolling. Man. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. That's back when Michael Jackson was hot, hot, hot. Oh, yeah. So I took the little curl and put it down to the front. So I, I thought I was amazing. They just wouldn't let me wear the glove. I'm to picture you with that right now. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> they just wouldn't let me wear the glove. But it was exciting. And man, they let me start singing in the inspirational choir, leading songs. And then I was in the Soul Children of Chicago during that age. And so that was exciting. But... Pastor Stovall really made me focus on the local church. So before I knew it, man, I'm 15 and I become the minister of music of Bright Star Church of God in Christ at the young age of 15, which was unprecedented. Everybody else, you know, they were the ministers of music, but they were all older, right? Much older adults. So for him to take me and make me the minister of music of the adults who helped to train me and develop me was pretty surreal. But now, man, I, I look back and even now telling this story gives me chills because I never thought about this particular thing. I actually now think that you say that, I mean, it makes me emotional actually, um, that he was training me up to lead who had been leading me, mm. right? It was amazing to become the pastor of people who used to whoop my behind as a kid. <laughs> mm -hmm. But now, just at this very moment, I'm realizing I literally became the minister of music of those who used to. So he was always setting me up. Mm. Sorry about this moment. I'm sorry. No, I never realized let's go it. there. Yeah, that's tripped out. Yeah, he was he was clearly sorry about crying, man. Uh, he was clearly <laughs> setting me seen, up. I've been crying over here the whole time. Man, that's, that's out, tripping yeah. me out. I never realized that to this moment. Um, that's that he was training crazy me up. special. Yeah. Like that's, that's tripped out. He was training me up to lead those who had been leading me. And then 10 years later, I become the pastor and he set me up to become the pastor. That's tripped out. That just, yeah. that just shook me. Yeah. Let's go back there for a second because I, I think that I don't, I think that's an important, how did that work? Just like culturally in the church, like here yeah. you are, you're a young kid, right? Yeah. 14, 15 years old. Yeah. And Man. was that, I mean, that couldn't have been easy. And of course that wasn't easy. Um, musically, it was easy because I was trained and raised up by those people. So it's almost like my little brother, you know, my nephew, right? That's, that's little Chris. So... Plus, they didn't have the responsibility anymore either. But um, it was it was pretty cool because they respected me musically. But pastorally, very different. Um, because now you gotta tell people no. Now you gotta guide and govern, right? And shepherd people who in some ways just ain't having it. Now, while, while as a minister of music, I'll let you direct me in singing. But as a shepherd and as a pastor, directing me in my spiritual walk and some parts of my natural life, oh no, that's not gonna happen. Twenty-five year old. Right. I mean, who are you? You're 15 years old. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm 15 and they're paying attention. But then pastorally, 25, it's very very different. Uh, but you know, I I did get as a 15 year old some of the you know, boy, let me teach you. Right. I remember those <laughs> lessons. I remember them very very well. Because then, as the minister of music, you had to tell them to pay dues. You had to tell them don't be late. You had to tell them to be on time for rehearsal. So they did give me a little grace because I had Dr. Stovall living, right? 
So as long as he's alive, they still got to do <laughs> what he said for us to do. But at 25, as the pastor, he's gone. Mm-hmm. So I don't have him to lean on. Mm-hmm. Right. And at this point, some of those people who's probably still ticked off about when I was telling them what to do at 15, <laughs> they're like, Stovall's gone now, brother. I'm going to let you feel this pressure. <laughs> and so it's very, very different. But um, shepherding and singing is very, very different. And the role as minister of music and minister or pastor of the church, mm. very, very different. Let's, <clears throat> let's talk about this moment. So it would be fair to say that you're a gifted singer. Yeah. Um, I don't know about musician. Do you play any instruments? Yeah, I don't play any instruments. I was never um, able to really focus on playing. I always wanted to play. Yeah. But man, you don't have a musician in me. Just But I can vocally do mm-hmm. what the musicians would do. Like I, I learned how to sing by listening to not only other singers, but I always had a love for gospel and jazz. So I would study Ella Fitzgerald. Fish are jumping. But from the musician side, I would study Ramsey Lewis. Favorite jazz artist who I ended up being blessed to sing behind. I traveled wow. with Ramsey for five years all over the country uh, as one of his backup singers. Uh, other musicians in gospel, you could just name all the different ones. I would listen to what they would play. Um, also on the guitar, Boney James and mm-hmm. all of those people who played. B.B. Uh, King, whatever they played on the instrument, I learned how to do it vocally. So that's how I was able to develop. And then also 95.5 WNUA mm-hmm. back in the day. I got a cold now, but, you know, we were, they, that just that um, the theme of WNUA, oh, yeah. 95.5. Oh, what was that? I don't know. Uh, look, yeah. WNUA 95.5. And so you would take it and you would run off all of that good stuff, right? And learn how to sing. And the next thing you know, here comes Boney James and here come Ramsey Lewis. And whatever they played, I vocalized it. So that's how I learned how to sing. Pastor Harris has an incredible voice. And I was curious if he remembers when he realized that for the first time. I actually can. Um, Two pivotal moments. Um, In Bright Star Church, I would sing this song um, and that's a that's a great question because it's it it actually makes me reflect right and I can remember the, these two pivotal moments where I knew that clearly I had something special right to me I was just singing right as I always did but in Bright Star Church when I got with the adult choir and this is what made Dr. Stovall put me in the adult choir, the inspirational choir. I would sing a song by the, I believe it was the Thompson Community Singers, um, I Love Jesus More Today than I did on yesterday. And man, I sang it, and I'm just doing what I do, but amazingly, when I was singing the song, at the end of the song, the church just exploded. People went into a praise and shouting and I mean, it was an explosion, right? But I'm still holding the mic like, <laughs> okay, right? I didn't know what that was. You knew something was happening. Yeah, I knew something different was happening. And then after I would sing, several times after that, it would it would keep happening. People would go into this radical praise, right? 
And then when I was, I think I was about 12, and we were a part of the we're Church of God in Christ is our denomination. And we're part of what's called jurisdictions. So we would have a state meeting. And the supervisor of women, Mother Nancy Lewis, at the women's convention, this was at the Bismarck Hotel in Chicago. Uh, I don't even think that hotel is still around. They asked me to sing with the state choir, same song, same thing happened. So it's one thing for it to happen locally, but it's another thing when it happened jurisdictionally. So the church went into this radical praise. It shut down the whole convention. People are praising, running and dancing. Now, clearly I'm not saved, but that's the first time that I cried and felt something inwardly, spiritually. So I say, yeah, something to this, right? <laughs> so later I learned that's the Spirit of God. Later I learned that's the presence of God. Later I learned that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Ghost, right? I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was these people are running around, <laughs> acting crazy. It's a little <laughs> weird for me, but okay, it happened because I sang. So at that point I started to become inquisitive because I want to know what is this thing? And so then that thing started to happen whether I sang locally, nationally, or around the world. It didn't matter if they were black, white, it didn't matter if they were young, old, it didn't matter if they were Pentecostal, evangelical, it didn't matter Catholic, it was the same thing because I became the minister of music of various churches at 15. So while I'm minister of music at Bright Star, I'm also the minister of music at St. Elizabeth Catholic Church. I'm also the minister of music at New Hope Community Baptist Church. So I'm working every Sunday from three different churches, mm. three de different denominations, but the music brought the same presence, mm. and that's the presence of God. And so that's what helped me to know uh, there is a real anointing that's attached to my singing that goes beyond any place or person. So did your mom? play a lot of music like what what did you just naturally I mean you didn't sit and roll out of bed and just be like exactly start rolling right my, my mom and my dad both can sing uh, but my mom is a strong strong testimony leader you to my Pentecostal girl that's really what she is and what she does uh, my dad was more so a crooner right so he could sing and then being raised up around singing so Bright Star was always one of the uh, most known singing churches. We had mm -hmm. great singers in our church, so we, we learned how to sing. And then having the advantage of being a part of the Soul Children of Chicago, mm -hmm. right, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Walt Whitman, who traveled all around the world. So that kind of vocal training was the only training that I had, learning in church to sing, uh, but not necessarily going to classical training or anything like that. It was, it was really self-taught, but also um, um, developed by professionals who had done it for a long time, particularly in gospel. So I know Dr. Stovall was a huge, had a huge footprint in your life. Mm -hmm. um, but what about your dad? What role did your dad play? I mean, you knew your dad was a singer, but did yeah. you, were you involved with him at all? Or? No, not at all. Um, my dad, pretty amazingly, uh, and it's probably one of the main reasons I do the work that I do with young men. Um, I take that very seriously because my dad was never in my life. So um, so I told you about the first part of how he, uh, let me say, nicely contributed to me being here, mm -hmm. but that was mainly his only contribution. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason that I always wanted to have a relationship with him is because I was always taught 
that scripture, honor your mother and your father, right? And then it's the first commandment with promise, right? Because he says, I'll make sure that your days are made long upon the earth, right? So everything else he said, just do this. But when he said, honor your mother and your father, he said, if you do it, then this is what I'll do for you. And that's what I mean by the first commandment with promise. And so he didn't say, honor your father if he was a good one. He didn't say, honor your mother if they took care of you. He just said, honor them, period. It's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. And so I always wanted to know him. Uh, well, my mom would always let me know who he was, uh, but he never really did anything for us. And every now and then, uh, he would give us $5 allowance, but that was maybe twice per year. But I never stopped. I still wanted to know who he was. And that changed for me when, we were, when I was 14. Uh, no, I was 12, forgive me. I was 12 because at that time, ADC, right? We used to call that after daddy cut out. <laughs> uh, ADC, the system caught up with him, welfare. And they wanted to garnish his check. And um, unfortunately, uh, he, uh, there was no proof that I was his child, so he had to take a blood test. But he denied me in court to mm. my face, right, that I was not his child. So that was uh, extremely, extremely painful for me. Uh, it was so bad till... I looked just like my dad, and it was so bad to when he said that the stenographer, I'll never forget it, don't forget I'm 12, and I remember this as a 44-year-old man. The stenographer stopped typing and said, he's a dealer. She said it out loud. And wow. the the uh, the judge took the gavel and hit the gavel and said, you're out of, you know, you're out of order, order in the court. Um, because she was like, he looked just like him. Mm -hmm. That's what the stenographer said, true story. But it cut me mm. to my core. And um, from that point on, it really, it affected me very, very seriously. But I still honored him and respected him as a man. That I started to realize I got daddy issues, right? And I, I wanted to fix that and overcome that. And so I started to reach out to my father and spend small time with him. But it was not until last year, literally last year, that everything broke. The first time that I ever had Thanksgiving dinner, with my mother and my father present was two years ago. Whoa. As a 42-year-old man, first time. And I was like a kid that was eight years old who was just excited. And it was so exciting, not just for me, but also for my children, right? Because that was the first time they ever had their father and grandfather, um, their uh, grandfather and grandmother and their father in the same exact place. So it was a big deal for us. And then... Although that was two years ago, last year, I finally sat him down outside. We just got us something to drink together and sat under the canopy in my backyard. And I said, let's talk. And man, that one conversation brought so much healing for me, mm. right? And uh, my dad and I have a great relationship now. I mean, a really, really great relationship. But it's bittersweet. Right, mm -hmm. because um, we started to develop this great relationship, and then now he's suffering with some sicknesses. Mm -hmm. And guess who got to take care of him? <laughs> exactly, me. And that's a little weird, right? Because as a person, as a pastor, you got to, that, that scripture still hit me in the head, right? Honor your father. <laughs> but you know, sometimes that flesh rises up and like, man, look. But it, for me, I think it is God testing me, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, I think it is. Not as much as him really testing me, but I really think he's maturing me. Mm. And and I'm pretty amazed that God's sense of humor works the way that it does. 
but I'm grateful that I have this privilege to say that I'm taking care of my dad. And it's also a good thing for my children to see, sure. right? Yeah. Because I hope that we, because I chose to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. Every time my child was born, all four of my children, as soon as they were born, I would go to the room where they were in the incubator and I made them all the same covenant. And here's what those words were. I promise you will never be able to say about me the things I'm able to say about my dad. That was the covenant that I made with each and every one of them the moment that they were born. And even though uh, I went through a divorce 10 years ago, the only thing that I wanted from my divorce were my children because I wanted to raise my children. And God blessed where I was able to get them. And they're all still with me now. Mm. Now I can't wait till they all get out. But that's another <laughs> story. <laughs> all right. So let's, um, you have a brother and sister? I have. I am number six out of eight children. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Six out of eight children. And how are they all doing in general? Everybody's doing fantastic. Um, the oldest, the first one, Lonnie, he died when he was a baby. Mm. Um, the second one, was his name is Charles uh, Tony Harris. He's deaf and mute, but he's a great, great basketball player, great dad to his children working in Chicago. The next one is Ronnie Harris, who is a uh, missionary who travels all over the world uh, doing mission work, uh, graduated from Moody and all of that good stuff. The next one is Tracy Harris who is a minister and minister of music. He is an executive pastor in Atlanta. Then there's my sister, Precious. Uh, she is the only girl. Uh, she is the crazy of the family, but we all protect her. She's the funny girl, the hilarious girl, the one who I like to act the fool with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is uh, myself, uh, pastoring Bright Star Church. Then the next one is uh, Joshua Stovall, who is an HIV AIDS activist who travels the world doing that. And then my baby brother, uh, who his name is James. Uh, his nickname is Sir the Baptist. He is a very well-known uh, recording artist uh, who is signed to Jay-Z's uh, title, and uh, he travels the world performing. So Sir the Baptist has exploded. Oh, 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 God is on the way. She just taking her time. He's churched hip-hop in the most amazing way. It's pretty dope. Everything about his music is about church, Mm. but it's hip-hop, and it has captured and and literally blown everybody away. So he's exploded uh, and just got back off tour. I was at the house. He was at the house yesterday. He was watching the game together, but he's he's really blown up. You should check him out. Awesome. Sir the Baptist. Take your time. Coming from a family with musical talent and the desire to serve and shepherd, Pastor Harris's college experiences started in the city, then took a different turn. I went to Moody uh, Bible Institute for one semester. I went to uh, Olive Harvey College for one semester. Uh, I always tell people the only degrees I have are the degrees on my thermometer. Uh, <laughs> I have one year of college. and But what I tell people all the time is what God's plan for me was, uh, he took me through the University of traveling the world to open my eyes and let me see the world Mm -hmm. through a different lens. And so soon as I graduated from high school, Tabernacle Christian Academy, uh, I started to travel the world singing with uh, Reverend Jesse Dixon, who opened up all of Europe for me. I have been to more than probably 24 different countries, uh, 24 different world tours singing Mm -hmm. gospel and jazz, mostly Scandinavia. Um, But it's been an exciting, exciting ride for me. The real reason he didn't go back to college is like the rest of his story, not what you would expect. 
the interesting thing about that college thing, man, is the main reason that I did not um, go to college was because my mom had saved up money for me to go to college. And this church that I now pastor uh, was getting ready to be closed down because the notes for the mortgage had gotten behind so bad. Right. And what did my mom, who was the secretary of the church, do? She took the money and gave it to my pastor to help keep the doors of the church open. Hmm. Who knew she was sowing into her own son's future? Wow. It's pretty crazy when wow. you really think about the yeah. whole story. And so that's why now through the work that we do at BSCO, I'm like, nope, we got to make sure the kids get in college. Because even though the Lord, you know, has taken me this route, and I always say, again, the only degrees I have are the degrees on my thermometer. Most of the people who work for me, they all have degrees. So now I have degrees. <laughs> so I just want to make sure that the opportunity that I did not have, younger children now will have that opportunity. And that's exactly how we met this work. Yeah. There are many things I love and admire about Pastor Harris, and much of it stems around his love for the city and his community, and doing what he can by activating others and loving his neighbors. It was here, after a local tragedy, he started programs that are still impacting the city. As a church, I'll never forget uh, Darian Albert, who was killed at, uh, out there by Finger High School. Uh, there was a big fight. It was a major issue all over the country. They took a two by four and hit him over the head. At Finger High School, he was murdered. And so it happened at a school. And so when I saw that, uh, one of the things that I said was, you know, they took prayer out of the school. So why don't we start what's called Prayer Around the School, PATS program, P-A-T-S, Prayer Around the School, where on the first Saturday of every month, from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., we would go and wrap prayer around all schools in Chicago. Um, because, of course, the separation of church and state, they say, well, I want prayer in school. Yeah, but you can't stop me from praying around the school. Mm -hmm. And it's on Saturday when the school is closed. It's not a legal issue. So we did. we started that. That program is now going on 11 years old. And so I'll never forget. Uh, so no matter how cold it is, no matter how hot it is, if it's raining, we are still out there first Saturday of every month, nine o'clock to 10 o'clock. And while we were marching from Woodson School, where I went to school, over to King High School, where my brothers and sisters went to school um, to pray, a grandmother heard us walking and singing. Somebody prayed for me, had me on their mind. And she grabbed her grandson and brought him outside. And she said, Reverend, I need you to pray for this boy, right? <laughs> so I said, okay, so we prayed for him. And I'll never forget when I got done praying, she said, now Reverend, I appreciate the prayer. She said, but we need more than prayer around here. So it kind of shook me. I said, well, well, what do you think you need? We need some programs, not, not programs. <laughs> we need programs around here. What kind of programs? She said, we need some after school and we need these kids to be tutored and, and the church just need to do more. That's all she said. And I never forgot that. Hence, I birthed Bright Star Community Outreach. So I said, how do we make Pat's prayer around the school be more than just prayer? So it turned into progress around the school. So Pat's one was prayer around the school. Patch 2 became progress around the school. Well, we put the after-school programs and things like that. Nobody told me we needed a board, we needed an organization, we needed a structure. We were just doing ministry. Well, that's how we found out we needed to have a real structure. 
Hence, Bright Star Community Outreach was birthed, uh, where we provide mentorship program, parenting, after-school programs, safe passage. We got about 11 programs that we do now, and uh, those can be seen at our website, brightstarcommunityoutreach.com. And uh, a little later, I'll tell you how that website started looking so good. That's a whole nother story. But uh, we started to provide all kinds of services to the community. The Safe Passage program where adults are, are standing out there on the street because they closed 50 schools. Many, Most of them were in our community in Bronzeville. And what that meant was young people were going to have to cross gang lines in order to get to their school. So what the mayor did was they created Safe Passage. Now, here's what's real big. Bright Star was doing Safe Passage before CPS replicated the program. So we took our own money out of the coffers of the church and started to raise money so that we would be able to make sure that adults were standing out there. They put charter school and public school together, and so they were fighting. So I said, I'm going to pay the adults to stand out there. And so CPS saw it, replicated it, and now it's Safe Passage, of which we have uh, seven schools that we cover in Bronzeville. But because of the long history we have doing it, and because they love the work that we do with the Spirit of Excellence, they've asked us now to cover 10 areas, community areas around the city. So they said they wanted us to become a leader citywide mm. around Safe Passage. And were it not for Safe Passage when I was a kid, no telling what would have happened to me. So now we're doing that same program. So it not only brings safety, but it also brings employment to thousands and thousands of Chicagoans. Mm. Wow. The next phase of Bright Star Community Outreach is the part of Pastor Harris's story where I first had the pleasure of meeting him and his team. He had the idea to start a new outreach model called the TURN Center. TURN stands for the Urban Resilience Network, and how it came to pass came from the most unexpected of places. While we were offering all kinds of programs, um, something happened as a National Council member of APAC the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, um, I went and took a trip to Israel, and it blew my mind. I'd always wanted to go to the Holy Land. But through APAC's educational fund, uh, they took me on that trip in December of 2012. And while I was on that trip, we went to Tel Aviv. So I saw a place called Natal, Trauma Counseling Center, where those who live under the constant threat of violence and trauma, they go there to get their PTSD issues addressed. Well a light bulb goes off in my head because I'm thinking while they're worried about missiles and sirens every day in Chicago we're counting body bags and toe tags every single day at that time it was 1142 people who had been murdered in Chicago alone now since January of 2012 close to 4,000 people have been murdered in Chicago alone not even including those who have been shot or wounded and what happened was the light bulb goes off in my head and I asked who does or did the trauma counseling for those families, whether it be the victim's family or the perpetrator's family? In most cases, nobody. Because black and brown people, not exclusively, but specifically since those are the folks we serve, they don't go to counseling for four reasons. They don't know the counselor, they don't trust the counselor, they don't think they can afford the counseling, and then number four, the stigma. Nobody wants to be labeled crazy. But they still come and talk to me, the faith leader. So what I said was, here's my idea. I wanna identify, train, and certify faith leaders to provide trauma counseling based on this Israeli model. Everybody loved it. I shared it with the mayor. He loved it. Connected me to the president and CEO of Northwestern Hospital, Dean Harrison. He loved it. And they sold $250,000 seed money into the effort. 
I reached out to my friends at the University of Chicago. And I said, the mayor has connected me with Northwestern. They're going to help us to build what we now call the Turn Center. I said, and you guys are in my backyard. They are downtown. I said, it's going to look mighty bad if you all are not a part of it. They came and said, we want to be at the table. So they matched it with $250,000. And then I wanted, I wanted fiscal management. I wanted metrics and evaluation. And we wanted to make sure that we did this well because the goal was to replicate. And the goal is to replicate across the country. Well, the United Way came on and helped us. And all of those institutions have been a part of this work for the last four years. And now we even have Cigna, who has become a partner of this work. And so the Israelis came three times. First time to do an assessment of the South and the West Side. Does this exist anywhere? The answer came back, no. Not only does it not exist in Chicago, but it doesn't exist anywhere in the country. Second time they came to do uh, help us to create the tailor-made model. The third time the Israelis came, they came to train the first 10 out of 120 faith leaders from around the city of Chicago, that first cohort of 10, five weeks of intensive training so that we can know how to do trauma counseling. Pretty amazing. And so now the Israelis are going to be coming back uh, this June to train the second cohort. So now we have opened up the helpline. So you have advocates that are on the helpline so that people who face trauma can call into the helpline every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. And those who are not on the helpline are called ambassadors. And their job is to go out and make the community trauma-informed, which is really, really exciting because what we found out is most of our people don't even know what trauma really is. They just say, it is what it is, and keep on going. Because our communities are particularly resilient, right? And so it's one thing for me to say we need it. It's another thing for Bright Star to say we need it. But how do you get the community to say we need it? So we got a $6 million research grant from CDC, uh, um, Centers for Disease Control. And what I said was, since the days of Tuskegee, you don't do data and research on black communities. Because what they typically do is researchers come in, get the data, and then slip on out of there with the information. They knew it from the beginning, but now they got the numbers to prove it. I said, no, what you got to do is give us 40% of those dollars so that we can implement evidence-based programs so we can move the needle on what you knew in the first place. They had no choice but to agree, and we're excited that they did. And so it's been really, really exciting because the first time out of the gate, we did an anonymous youth survey in 19 schools in Bronzeville. First time out of the gate, and we made history. 82% response rate, and that does not happen. Uh, 2,250 kids were eligible. 1,850 took it. 127 question anonymous youth survey that took a full class period. We went through the IRB and RRB process. And after the data quality check, you got the voice of close to 1,600 students that are telling us how the Turn Center can serve them. Five core competencies, counseling, mentorship, parenting, workforce development, and advocacy. And one of the main things that we learned out of the data is the fact that more than 35% of the students who took the survey show clinical signs of depression, which is why mental health has to be the big flagship of what we do. So not just intervention, but prevention. As we sat with Pastor Harris, we had many conversations about Bronzeville, the city, and the realities of racism in our world. We also talked about the historic church building he was in, the Robert Temple Church of God. I also discovered it was the very same church in 1955 that held Emmett Till's open casket funeral. This funeral was credited with reigniting the civil rights movement, 
and has been in the news again lately. If you don't know the story of Emmett Till, please Google it and read more. I'll also include some links in the show notes. I have a question. I'm not quite sure how to ask it, so I'm just going to ask it. Go for it. Friends, and you can help me sure. navigate this. It's a big question. Go for it. How do people outside of this community understand racism? <laughs> well, um, people, peop, I think a lot of people honestly are blind to what racism is. And, and I believe it's a, a, a willful blindness. I think people want to turn away from the issue of racism because once you become informed, now you got to get involved, right? And a lot of people don't want to address uh, that there is racism. Uh, absolutely, people don't want to acknowledge that they might be racist. And they don't want to admit that they may have racist tendencies. Because everybody who have racist tendencies, it doesn't make them a racist, right? But the culture and the society a lot of times is what caused that to happen. And so I think it's pretty unfortunate that we are experiencing that. And uh, people outside of the community and inside the community uh, need some more education on what racism is and what racism is not. Because it's a difficult thing and it's a big banner, but it is something we absolutely need to talk about. And although I personally have some issues with the current president, I will say this. The one thing I'm thankful for is he's forcing a conversation mm. to be had. Uh, whatever his behaviors are and his words are, it's forcing a real conversation to be had. Uh, because if he uh, continues to tweet and continue to do and say things from the Oval Office and from the White House, uh, no irony in that wording, uh, it is my prayer that it will cause some real uncomfortable conversations to happen in our house. Do you remember uh, how I was in your office the day after the election? We both were. Yeah. Do you remember we were just like, mm -hmm. what? Oh, yeah. Couldn't believe it. You. Yeah, we. I, I, I'm, I'm, I remember that day because I, I think we were all just still floored and just blown away. And I think uh, what we have seen since that day, if you notice, we keep saying, what? <laughs> what? Like activity after activity, action after action, things continue to happen. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we all use this as a learning tool to say, uh, racism is real. And if he's done nothing else, he's exposed mm -hmm. hidden racism, mm -hmm. right? Anytime you can have things like Charlottesville to happen, mm -hmm. right? Anytime you can, now the NFL has come out and said that players can't kneel during the Star Spangled Banner. What? But So now we, we can't have free speech, right? So it's pretty amazing, you know, and I think it's, uh, I remember Tim Tebow, he kneeled when it was addressing abortion, and everybody called him a hero. But black guys and white guys kneel when they're talking about racism and the issue of police brutality. Now you're not a. It's no longer against. Um, I mean, it's no longer. Uh, I'm now that kneeling is against American values. Get out of here. Mm -hmm. This is America, and they have a right. And so I hope people are really talking about this craziness that's going on. And here is another example of my friend teaching me what is what. What is the Black National Anthem? So the Black National Anthem, a lot of people don't even realize what it is. Um, and I'm pretty amazed that so many young people uh, in Chicago 
don't know what the Black National Anthem is. We are pushing in Bronzeville schools that they sing it every single day. Um, and it's a song that was written, uh, which when you think about these anthems and sorry for the, throwing this in, uh, there is racism even in the Star Spangled Banner, right? The, I believe it's the third verse which talks about slaves, right? And people don't even realize that's one of the main reasons. I'm, I'm mad that the media doesn't raise that up. But when you think about the Black National Anthem, uh, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicings rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. A lot of kids don't even know that that song actually exists. And so it is a song of the anthem of black liberation, right? And I'm hoping that more people will start to sing it and require it, especially this young generation. Because this young generation, uh, I always believe in this theme. You don't know where you're headed until you know where you came from. And the, the reason this younger generation does not really fight as hard as the previous generations did is because now they're getting everything so easy. Everything's coming to them free. They don't have to fight for anything. I mean, these kids have cell phones that cost 600 bucks, right? And they have gym shoes that cost $2,000, ridiculous, right? But at the end of the day, we need to hold ourselves accountable to make sure that we continue to teach this generation and the coming generation all the things that the previous generations fought for us to have because at the end of the day, if we get rid of those kinds of anthems, we will no longer have those kinds of freedoms because there is an, I believe that there is a real intentional effort to take us backwards and not forward. And if we are not careful as black people, we will end up back in chains, not just on our mind and our mentality, but chains on our legs and chains on our wrists if we are not careful. When you get freedom, you better fight to keep freedom. And it is those kinds of anthems like the Black National Anthem that keeps the song in our head that makes sure that the suffering that the song represents never leaves our mind. Mm. Wow, man. Man, I love you. I love you too, brother. I'm so so glad you guys spent time with you. (laughs) That's my pleasure. And thank you all. I'm I'm very, I'm very, very grateful for not only our friendship, but our fellowship and all that you guys do to make us look like we know what we're doing. It's it's a big help. We're honored to be a part of it. You know, we're in. No, you've you've proven that from you day one. You don't even have to ask. No, it's a the done answer is yes. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. And it's, it's our goal to make sure that we reciprocate because what you guys have done for us is just really unprecedented, to be honest with you. And we couldn't do what we do without partners like you guys. So thank you, love you, and really appreciate you. My pleasure. Love you, man. <clears throat> thank y'all for the day. Thank you to my friend and brother, Pastor Chris Harris. I treasure our time together. For more on Bright Star Community Outreach and the Turn Center, please visit brightstarcommunityoutreach.com. Please take some time to learn about them, help spread the word, donate, and support their work. I would also like to thank Sleeping At Last for being the soundtrack to our show. For more on Ryan O'Neill and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music from. To design of audio engineer Steve Wick, who has been an editor and an advisor extraordinaire, we love you, man. No need to ask, he's a smooth operator. To the co-founder of this show, Wills Francis, whose real dream is to go back in time when... Michael Jackson was hot, hot, hot. Oh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. 
If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Tell others about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.